Today on episode 26 of the California Slap Law podcast, we discuss an anti-slap case out of Canada involving defamation against a city council person that beautifully illustrates some fundamental anti-slap concepts. Play me and Joe. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 26th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the Southern California boutique law firm of Morrison Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, or if you need to fight an an attorney fee application following an anti-slap motion, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And I'm becoming a little better about tweeting out interesting stuff I come across. You can follow me on Twitter at Aaron Morris ESQ, Aaron Morris esque. I actually hate the whole Esquire thing. I'm sure you know that it has little current meaning. Originally, it was an English title of dignity showing that person ranked above a gentleman but below a knight. But here's a fun fact about the use of Esquire. Since it has become the norm to use ESQ after a name to show the person is an attorney, if someone decides to simply use ESQ after their name because they think it sounds cool, it can get them in trouble for the unauthorized practice of law under appropriate circumstances. And here's something that may surprise you having to do with using JD after your name. So you graduate from law school with a Juris Doctorate, correct? And like any degree, one would think you could throw those initials after your name in a resume, for example, to show that you have your degree. Well, in Utah, a law school graduate went to work as a real estate broker and put J.D. after his name on his business cards. The Utah Bar Association looked at that and had an issue with him putting J.D. after his name since that could imply that he was acting as a lawyer at the real estate office. Now, ultimately, they gave him a pass on that point, but then they nailed him on another point. To leave no doubt that he was not holding himself out as an attorney by adding J.D. to his name, he added an asterisk, and that asterisk said that he was not an active member of the bar. Well, the Utah bar held that was misleading because saying he was not an active member of the bar implied that he was an inactive member of the bar, and that implied that he was an attorney. So um, he got in a little trouble for that. Do a search for ABA Journal article entitled Tussle Over Titles. Interesting stuff. Another great week at Morrison Stone. An existing client brought us a case that was pending in Sacramento. Now, we take cases all over the state from San Diego to San Francisco, but I encourage clients to try and find local counsel instead of having to pay me for my travel time. But this client really wanted us to handle this one. It was another crazy case. Let's make our client a woodworker to preserve his privacy, and let's say he was sued for defamation for allegedly stating on social media that another woodworker had stolen his idea for making furniture in a particular way. Now, it was not in dispute that the plaintiff was using our client's woodworking technique, but the issue, at least in the mind of the plaintiff, was whether he had quote-unquote stolen the idea from our client or had arrived at the technique independently. Now, it didn't help the plaintiff's argument that he had previously worked for our client and had seen this technique being employed. So the client brought me the complaint thinking I would bring an anti-slap motion like I had in his previous case, but I decided a demur was a better course. I decided that two woodworkers fighting over a woodworking technique probably would not be deemed a matter of public interest, and besides, I thought I could get rid of the case with a much less costly demur. My argument was, and I I found authority to support this position, 
that it is not defamatory to claim that someone stole your idea. Stealing ideas is standard business practice, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. For example, at some point, someone figured out how to mass-produce hamburgers, and all that followed used that same business model. At some point, a guy with an airplane figured out that he could charge people to take them from point A to point B, and all airlines now follow that business model. And I don't know if Uber or Lyft was first, but one of them came up with the idea of an app for ride-sharing, and the other one followed that model. You could say that one stole the idea from the other, but so what? That's standard business practice. It would be terrible business not to follow a successful business model. So in the demur, I just wrote that the complaint failed to state a cause of action for defamation because it is not defamatory to claim that someone is using your business idea. Well, within days of serving the demur, we received a completely unsolicited dismissal with prejudice. I never once had to appear in Sacramento, and I got the client out of the case for far less than what an anti-slap motion would have cost. True, we can't bring a motion for attorney fees, but the cost of the demur, which was nominal, was probably less than the amount the judge would have reduced the attorney fees on the anti-slap motion. So let's get to today's case out of London, and that would be London, Ontario, not London, England. This one caught my eye because it is a call I get about twice a week. Here's how it goes. Someone is arrested for, let's say, credit card fraud, and that arrest is reported in the news. The district attorney decides not to pursue the case, or the defendant goes to trial and is found not guilty, so they come to me wanting to sue all the media outlets that reported he was arrested for credit card fraud. I tried to explain that the statements by the news outlets were entirely 100% true. The person was arrested for credit card fraud. But I didn't commit credit card fraud, they will say. Yes, but you were arrested for credit card fraud, so the statement is entirely true. But I didn't commit credit card fraud, they will say. And so it goes. No matter how I try to explain it, the caller won't accept that this is a true statement that they were arrested for credit card fraud, even if they did not commit credit card fraud. I explain that most news organizations will refuse to retract a story under these facts, but they are usually more than open to adding a note to the online story that the caller was ultimately found not guilty of credit card fraud. And then there is a common variation on this scenario. In this variation, the person was found guilty of the crime, but they later get the court to agree to expunge the conviction. Somebody somewhere along the process tells them that it will be as though the arrest and conviction never occurred, so they don't even need to list them on any future employment applications. Well, then they go apply for a job. They don't list the arrest and conviction since they have been expunged, but a background check reveals them and they don't get the job. They call me wanting to sue the background investigator for telling the employer they were arrested and convicted. I tell them this is not defamatory because they were arrested and convicted. But it was expunged, so it is no longer the case that they were arrested and convicted, they will argue. But it is still true that at a point in time, they were arrested and convicted, so it is a true statement. But it was expunged, so it's no longer a case where they were arrested and convicted, they continue to argue. And so it goes until they finally hang up on me. And there is one other fundamental concept that often arises that is also implicated by the London case we're about to discuss. Defamation, at its heart, is premised on the loss of reputation. I think I've discussed here before the case of the Donner Party. As you may recall, the Donner Party was the ill-fated group of American pioneers traveling by wagon train from Missouri to the West Coast. They made it to what is now called Truckee, California, but the extreme winter weather trapped them there. 
The travelers started dying from exposure, and the survivors began eating the corpses. Later, a California newspaper reported that one of the survivors of the Donner Party had stolen the possessions of the people he ate. He sued, claiming that he had done no such thing. He actually won his case because the newspaper could not prove that he had stolen anything, but the court awarded him just $1 in damages, concluding that he could not show that the theft claim had further damaged his reputation given that he was a known cannibal. How this concept usually presents itself is over some minor inaccuracy in a news report. Someone is charged with five counts of credit card fraud, but a newspaper reports it as seven counts. I tell the caller to employ my employment analysis. I tell them to pretend they're being interviewed and examine whether the two different versions impact their employment prospects. If they can truly argue that a prospective employer would say, you know, I have no problem with you being charged with five counts of credit card fraud, but if it is really seven counts of credit card fraud, then there's no way I'll hire you. If they can really honestly say that, then they have a case. But as you can tell from my sarcastic tone, that's not really the situation. Okay, so these are both fundamental concepts that truthfully reporting arrest is not a false statement and that there must be loss of reputation that I think everyone should understand without explanation. And then I come across an article where an attorney did not understand either concept. In this case out of London, Ontario, a council person named Bill Armstrong was running for re-election in London. His opponent did some digging into his past and found that he'd been convicted of sexual assault in 1987. But many years after, he received a pardon for the crime. His political opponent began to make hay with this old sexual assault conviction, and that haymaking was reported in the local press. Armstrong, who ultimately won re-election in any event, sued his opponent and some media outlets claiming all this talk about his conviction for sexual assault was defamatory because he'd been pardoned. If he was pardoned, then obviously the sexual assault never took place in his mind. The defendants responded to the complaint with an anti-slap motion. Ontario only passed an anti-slap statute in 2015, and this case was viewed as one of the early tests of that statute. Well, just as the anti-slap statute had a steep learning curve for judges here in California when it was passed, the judge in London didn't quite get it and in 2016 denied the anti-slap motion. The defendants appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion. Ontario's anti-slap law is kind of a mishmash of concepts, but it still requires a showing that the plaintiff is likely to prevail, and it was on that basis that the Court of Appeal overturned the trial court's denial of the anti-slap motion. To prevail on an anti-slap claim in Ontario, just as in California, the plaintiff must establish three elements. First, that the impugned words were defamatory in the sense that they would tend to lower the person's reputation in the eyes of a reasonable person. That element is worded differently in California, but the practical result is the same. Secondly, that the words, in fact, referred to the person. And three, that the words were communicated to at least one person other than the plaintiff. It was on this first element that the Court of Appeal focused. And here's what the opinion stated. Quote, not every foot over the defamatory foul line warrants dragging the offender through the litigation process. Did Armstrong actually seek to vindicate his reputation or did he seek to punish and intimidate his political foe and those associated with her? Well, the Court of Appeal concluded that Armstrong could not show any loss of reputation based on the statements made because it wasn't the statements that were hurting his reputation. It was the fact that he'd been convicted of sexual assault. So Armstrong's attorneys had missed the points that the reported statements were true and they did not create any loss of reputation beyond the loss of reputation concomitant with what Armstrong had done. The Court of Appeal also threw in, inappropriately, I believe, the fact that Armstrong had won the election as though that was evidence that he had not suffered any loss of reputation. Using the example of a former client of Morrison Stone, Donald Trump, 
I think that's the first time since the election that I've name dropped that. He made those infamous recorded statements about grabbing women. I don't think the fact that he was subsequently elected would be determinative as to whether the statements negatively impacted his reputation. Thanks for dropping by. You say, I thought this was the California Slap Law podcast, not the Ontario Slap Law podcast. Well, yes, but this case beautifully illustrates that you must have a viable action lest you fall prey to an anti-slap statute in whatever jurisdiction. Remember, there's two prongs. You have to show that it falls under the anti-slap statute, but you also have to show that you're more likely than not to succeed. So when taking on a case, make sure you're going to be able to prove that case. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. So he had two recent attorney fee applications, one for an anti-slap motion and one based in contract. The first was here in Orange County where I was seeking some $28,000 for an anti-slap motion. That's about twice what I usually seek, but the plaintiff had done some things that necessitated a lot of work. There the judge awarded every penny I requested. The other case was in Riverside County. I almost attended the hearing telephonically, but I thought I'd better go look the judge in the eye. In that case, I handled only part of a breach of contract action, and I was seeking about $21,000 in attorney fees. Right off the bat, with no reason or justification, the judge knocked $50 off my hourly rate. Then, at this lower hourly rate, he states that he's going to award about $10,000. I hate when attorneys do this, but I hate it even more when judges do it. In support of any fee application I submit, I attach all the time entries. So my application will show that I spent 2.3 hours researching a motion, 2.9 hours drafting the motion, etc. If you're going to cut my fees, then show me which of those entries with which you disagree. Was the 2.3 hours too much? Or was it the 2.9 hours? If you can't so specify, Your Honor, then your award is completely arbitrary. The judge just pulled a number out of the air and said he was going to award 28 hours worth of time at the reduced rate. Well, I called his award absurd and then immediately thought better of it. I do this thing where when a judge is being foolish, I kind of default to, well, you're not giving me what I want anyway, so I might as well get the satisfaction of explaining in open court how flawed your reasoning is. So after I told him his reasoning was absurd, he took the matter under submission. I thought he probably wanted more time to find ways to give me even less. Well, the ruling came down about a week later, and he apparently did not take my absurd comment personally, and he split the baby, awarding $16,000 in attorney fees. I'm sure I would not have achieved that result if I had attended the hearing telephonically. Getting in the judge's face a little resulted in an additional $6,000. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.